Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Today's podcast is being sponsored by The Blue Cell. As the nation's most active in-person and virtual incident command system and consequence management training company, stop by our website today to address your personal and agency training needs. Go to www.thebluecell.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Kira Masseff, a clinical psychologist and specialist in disaster behavioral health. And I should say Dr. Kira Masseff. Uh, in this podcast, we'll be learning uh, about the mental and behavioral health issues we are seeing uh, be experienced from the pandemic, pandemic and some possible coping uh, measures. And welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Masseth. If it's okay, I'll just call you Kira from here out. Yeah, that's fine, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really am looking forward to chatting about disasters with you. Okay, and so before we started, you got my brain strut right. I explained to you that um, up until I met you, I would have said that post-disaster, we have to have mental health professionals available. And you're telling me that mental health has now been changed by behavioral health. And when did that change and uh, why was that name change? Yeah, it's sort of been a... Yeah, that's a great question. Good, good place to start, I think. It uh, has been a gradual change in terminology that's occurred over the last few years. And the reason why it's called behavioral health now instead of mental health is that behavioral health is a little bit of a larger umbrella that also encompasses substance use. So when we talk about behavioral health, especially in the context of recovery from a disaster, we definitely want to acknowledge the role that substance abuse um, plays. In that, in that whole process. So behavioral health is sort of a broader term that incorporates mental health as well as substance use now. Okay, and do you think the addiction epidemic that we had in this country contributed to that change? Um, in part, I think that it's been a little bit of a, a reflection of our desire to move away from stigma and to try and reduce stigma around mental illness specifically, focus on strength space and focus on behaviors that people can change potentially. So the idea of labeling it behavioral health moves it farther away from some of the sort of stigmas that it has carried with it for decades now. Okay, all right. So um, Dr. Masseth, (laughs) establish those credentials, right? Um, What's your background in disaster behavioral health and how did you become interested in dealing with the impacts of the pandemic on the mental health or behavioral health of people dealing with stress in general? Yeah, I've been involved with disaster response work for um, 11 years now, almost 12 years. And I started taking classes and doing some of the FEMA certifications while I was in graduate school. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Um, and I work in private practice with teenagers and adults, but my disaster work really got started uh, when the 2010 earthquake hit in Haiti. And I went, uh, I was sort of deployed with a group of 
other medical professionals, and we referred to ourselves as the Doctors Without Borders rejects. <laughs> sort of a joke. Uh, all right. Um, well, I, and, I might be eligible. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, we established a clinic um, outside of Port-au-Prince, and we worked with people for a while. And uh, one of my colleagues and I developed a curriculum to help support people dealing with the you know, the intense behavioral health concerns in the large scale recovery from a big disaster and um, how community members can help each other. So that was really my first application of this. And then I've been doing disaster re relief work locally and internationally since that, since that time. And most recently, um, that same colleague and I who were working in Haiti together were asked to co-lead the behavioral health strike team for the Washington State Department of Health. So my current job since um, January 2020, right before COVID hit, was as a co-lead of this strike team group, which is designed to be a rapid response deployable unit for disasters within Washington state. And obviously COVID has not been either rapid um, or deployable. <laughs> well, and <laughs> so, and it's everywhere. So. Yeah, right. Um, so we've been, our team has been active in the COVID response from the behavioral health side um, since the beginning. So that's been the most, the most recent disaster work I've done. Okay, and then how big is, you know, your strike team? I mean, number of people? Yeah, so there are, um, there's been a range since we've started between um, three and nine professionals at any given time. These are licensed mental health providers. So psychiatrists, uh, clin clinicians, psychologists um, who also have experience or training in crisis response and disaster work. And We've tried to, because our, our group is not large, we've tried to really make the most of our, of our opportunity there by providing a lot of trainings and focusing on education rather than doing direct service work, which, okay. which is something we might do in a different disaster, but with COVID that wasn't an option. So right now I think there are six, five or six active members of the strike team. Okay. And then how do you coordinate, if at all, with other behavioral health professionals. I, yeah, I'm just, I, again, thinking of Red Cross. Red Cross, right. One. So one of the members of our team is one of the uh, behavioral health leads for the Red Cross in Washington state. So we, we, have a, we have a direct in with one of our members. Okay. And, I, you know, nine, 10 people doesn't sound like, I mean, it's great because a lot of times it's just been individuals, right, responding. Mm -hmm. So now mm -hmm. you have a team, you have more organized approach, but uh, it, it, in, in the army terms, we'd call it a squad. <laughs> it's uh -huh, that's a right. real big group given the size. So are there plans to bring in, you know, I don't know, scores of other uh, clinical psychologists to try and assist? You know, I don't know whether it's mutual aid or how yeah. that I think what the sort of general strategy is that our team is trying to focus on is really two things. For COVID specifically, we're focusing on large scale um, guidance documents and writing. We put out a forecast and some sit reps and some information out to the general public um, and doing a lot of presentations and a lot of trainings. So that's, that's one way that we can expand our reach a little bit. The original design of the strike team was to, like I mentioned, be a rapid response deployable unit. So in that case, only one or two of us would deploy to um, an earthquake or a fire or a landslide or whatever the case may be. And then we would focus on training the people within the community. One of the things that's different okay. about behavioral health in disaster work is that it's really important to try and leave resources within the local community. 
we don't want to just come in and offer some psychological first aid for lack of a better term and then take off again we want to try and train people that are going to be staying there and living there in how to build long-term resilience and active coping and interventions okay how about now who can be actually on a team i'm asking a question we didn't talk about but i know you know the stuff <laughs> inside and out so okay i'm here i'm a ordained pastor and the ump damp uh baptist lutheran methodist church and i do a lot of counseling for parishioners i i'd like to be able to help uh, yeah is that, is that somebody that can because they're not a, a clinical uh, right. behavioral person right um we've had a lot of discussion about that and in fact we have actually seriously entertained the idea of including clergy um on the team as well just because it that's a wonderful niche in that psychosocial support function for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's not something that we have done yet, um, but mostly it's because we haven't found the right combination in terms of someone who's available with interest and with the experience that we're looking for. But the other piece of that too, is that we do wanna make sure from an ethical perspective that, that whomever joins the team has um, either certification or licensure at a particular level that yeah. makes it appropriate for them to deploy with us. Okay. I hit the other thought occurred to me, um, people who, who do this uh, in a significant way, working with people who've uh, dealing with a lot of stress would be uh, police and fire chaplains. And they're, mm -hmm. uh, and they're, they're used to doing that. I call it the old non-denominational manner. They're, they're just mm -hmm. trying to meet people's needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and from that standpoint, I'll, I'll link you up with a guy. Uh, I know <laughs> in that. And actually, I did a, um, I also have done Disaster Zone TV on King County uh, Television, and we did an interview with this guy, Mike Ryan. So he's a, cool. um, uh, he's a fire chaplain for the city of, of Bellevue. So, okay, oh, Let, let's see, this is how we coordinate, right? American yeah, absolutely. Networking. Uh, so I, I call, um, uh, you know, there's BC and I'll call it BP before pandemic yeah. era. Uh, so in what areas of psychology were you concentrating your work then and why there? So in my clinical hat, wearing my clinical hat, I was doing a lot of work with teenagers and adults um, in basic life, you know, life related shifts and changes, unexpected events, uh, some trauma work, PTSD, um, treatment for depression and anxiety and that sort of thing. So um, sort of more of a clinical gen generalist, I would say. Um, and then the disaster response work has been a thread that I've had the whole time that I've been operating clinically as well. So even though it wasn't COVID, obviously, before <laughs> it was before pandemic, but it, there was always been other disasters. So I had done a lot of work in Jordan with Syrian refugees um, and working with refugees locally here too. And then how, how did you get linked up with these overseas missions? Um, well, you got to know a guy, right, Eric? Isn't that the, <laughs> isn't what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> it's rule number seven for me. Um, yeah, so it's about, um, you know, working with nonprofits and NGOs and getting connected to people who know people. And once the reality sort of is recognized about the significance of behavioral health responses, then people reach out. Uh, so okay. once once that you know that work and that reputation get established, then 
we have an easier time finding a right. hosting organization, as you would say. Okay, you made it 11 minutes in without using an acronym, NGO, oh. <laughs> <laughs> NGO. which is pretty good. There's, there's some people actually in Europe and Australia that listen, so. Yeah, um, non-governmental organization. So okay. those are the folks who mostly respond and um, are able to do a lot of the, a lot of the relief work um, around the world that aren't related to, you know, they're not politically affiliated or related to a government. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, you've, you've looked at stress in general, and if anything, the, you know, the pandemic era has been one of high stress on any number of kids, parents, teenagers, governments, um, scientists, uh, we've all had some piece of stress that uh, react to these words, because I know you use these. I yeah. heard you do a presentation on the and share how they help or hinder people dealing with stress. I'll just rattle them off uh, together and you can uh, weave your answer there and I'll remind you maybe if there's something. So trust, okay. hope, the function of the brain, um, sensory in intervention, how to reduce stress. And then for emergency managers, um, I even asked you a question on this when you did a webinar for us, I think. Being on call all the time and the need for time away. Yeah. So you can okay. hold for it. Take it from there. Okay. I'm actually going to start with the brain because that uh, brain functioning from a neuropsych perspective really informs uh, how people sort of experience all the other things on that list <laughs> that you mentioned. So one of the things that happens in a large scale disaster is that um, there's a relationship neurologically between stress that builds up and how a brain functions that's been traumatized. So people ask me pretty regularly, what's the difference between trauma and stress? And this is, here's, a, here's a little metaphor, I guess. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's a ducks and birds thing, right? So um, all trauma is stressful, but not all stress is traumatic, right? All ducks are birds, but not the other way around. Um, and what we've had in COVID in this large scale, in this large scale disaster is consistent, uh, pretty serious stress over a very long period of time. And for many people individually, there have been significant traumas associated with it as well, whether that's the loss of a loved one or the unexpected loss of uh, employment security or housing or something like that. So lots of ways that stress and trauma are affecting how we think. Um, and one of the strongest ways that that occurs is the tendency of us, of all of us, to sort of misperceive information. So we are more likely to misperceive um, a comment or a text message or an email from somebody else because our brains are so focused on trying to keep us safe right now that we're, we're going to perceive things as being negative or threatening or hostile when they're not. Okay, and so, so not only is there misinformation there's disinformation and we're ourselves contributing to the misinformation yes on how we perceive information yeah. we receive right and that's just a basic sort of neurological thing that we've known for a long time and in the current sort of socio-political so social media context it makes everything harder because yeah. there's so much of that flying around so that kind of leads me to the first word that was on your list, which is the idea of trust. And trust plays out in a lot of really kind of complicated ways in disaster recovery. But the, the big one is that um, 
it's harder for us because we aren't as accurate in our perceptions right now. It's harder for us to sort of act behaviorally in a way that um, promotes trust from other people because we might be more impulsive. We might do things that are out of character. There's something called in, in disaster recovery, there's something called acting out and acting in. And that's the way that people express distress and it's pretty common. So you people tend to either be more of an actor inner or an actor outer depending on personality and experiences and things. But people who are actor outers express their distress externally. Yeah. They get aggressive or they might break the law or they might engage in something harmful, right? And people who are actor inners kind of shut down and withdraw and isolate even when they don't necessarily need to. Uh, it's, so, uh, uh, yeah. Is either one better or worse? I, I expect not. I mean, both of them no. have a negative aspect to it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. No, neither is better or worse. It's just a, we call it, I'm, I'm going to get a little nerdy, but we call it a bimodal distribution. So rather than just a bell curve, like one, one bell curve, there's two. And people's personalities tend to draw them towards acting in or acting out. Okay. When, it, when it comes to disaster response, like how people respond in a crisis and in a disaster. Okay. All right. So all of that is really tied up in how we interact with each other right now. Um, and the, I think the reason, I'm not sure why trust was added on your list, but I think it was in the context of, you know, for responders and for those of us who do response work and for healthcare workers and educators, right? Part of the, part of the long-term plan here needs to be that we trust each other and we, we have the opportunity to ask for help from other people. Yeah. And, you know? and I think we live in an era of high mistrust, distrust. Yes. Institutions no longer are trusted at all, no matter what it is. Right, yeah. right. And that, you know, that is very, um, that throws people off, right? That's very um, unsettling because if you don't, if you don't think you can understand what to predict and what to expect about things, then that's, that psychologically is, is harder for people in general. Okay. How about so the that? next, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, I was gonna ask about hope. Hope is a big yeah. thing for me. Um, the only time I can think of is at the Alamo. Actually, the people hung out there and stayed and uh, knew that help was not coming. Right. <laughs> at the end, yeah. they, they knew help was not. So there was no hope that they had. Right. They, you know, it's, it's unique. And I always say, if you got to give people hope, otherwise they'll curl up in a ball and, you know. Yeah. Hope is one of the four ingredients of resilience, and it is the most emotionally meaningful ingredient. Um, and I think what you're describing at the Alamo, um, that might have been optimism and not hope. Um, optimism, <laughs> yeah. Well, they didn't um, have any. Yeah. Well, they, well, it, that, but, so op optimism is not reality based often. Yes. Um, it's not grounded in, in truth and hope yeah. is. So one of the big distinctions between hope and optimism for me, at least, is that hope is the reality of what's on the other side of the coin. And when we're experiencing a disaster, we're so focused on one side of the coin, like all of the things that are going wrong. And hope is the truth about, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe some of this working from home stuff isn't so bad. And maybe we have the opportunity to shift some cultural things here yeah. as a function of this pandemic. So. Yeah. Um, it's the it's the true opportunity on the other side, and hope is like I said, it's very emotionally meaningful. I think you agree with that. that people have to have yeah. it. Right, right. So the deal is for the Alamo is uh, whoever's in charge of the Alamo there, 
buoy or whoever. Yeah, and they sent they sent somebody through the lines back off to Sam Houston, who was not a city at the time. He was a man, mm -hmm. and um, said, "Hey, we need help. Blah blah. We're trapped." And he said, "Hey, we're not coming. We we don't have the capability." And then that yeah. guy, the bravest guy, rode back to tell him, and stayed. And yeah. stayed. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yep. So, um, okay. You ready for the next question? Did you have anything more there? I, I don't think so. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Well, I had not heard the duck and bird um, <laughs> metaphor before. <laughs> I'll give you one here is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him a duck. So there's that's, there you go. That <laughs> that sounds like the how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb joke? Oh, you heard that one? Uh, uh, just one, I, but the, the light bulb has to want to change. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. Thanks. Uh, we used to say uh, this religious here is how many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb and change? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we change? Okay. So um, one more question before we take a break. And you've studied disasters in general. What characterizes the behavioral health challenges that disaster survivors routinely deal with? That's a great question. And it's one of my favorites because um, I think the answer will help most of us feel a little bit normal <laughs> about what's been going on. Um, the biggest area of normal response in behavioral health to a disaster is cognitive functioning difficulty. And people don't recognize that that's actually part of the package here. Our brains are so tired and they are so, um, it, it, it is a function of stress. They're so stressed out that when we have so much cortisol, which is the stress hormone built up in our brains, um, we actually lose a little bit of our ability to focus and to remember things and to kind of stay on track. And it feels like for many of us, um, symptoms of ADHD or, you know, I've spent my fair share time of time wondering if I have early onset dementia happening yeah. over here because yeah. I just can't, I just can't remember things. I can't track details the way that I used to. And so getting that information out there to folks to recognize, listen, you know, cognitively, if you feel a little compromised right now, that is a normal part of the behavioral health response to a large scale disaster. It just is. And we've known that for decades. Um, so you have the cognitive component, you have the behavioral acting out and acting in, you have the social emotional component where you might feel like you're riding an emotional roller coaster every day. You know, today's Friday, thank goodness, it's at the time that we're recording this. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you wake up in the morning and you think it's going to be a great day. And before you get to lunch, it feels like the worst day you've ever had and back and forth and all the time. So that's normal, too. And oftentimes when people experience these symptoms, they think it's them or there's something wrong with them personally. And we forget about how important and influential the context is over our experience. Okay. Well, I've, I've learned a lot about more than ducks and birds, that metaphor <laughs> there, in the first half of the, this podcast. Um, but when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about more of the solutions to this yeah. that maybe we individually can use. And then um, a lot of disaster uh, emergency management, first responder personnel, I, I'm guessing, I don't know by names, uh, you, who listens here. And just average citizens can use some of these coping mechanisms, if that's the yep. right word. Uh, sure. For that. So, uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to take a quick break right now, and then we'll be right back. 
as the nation's most active in-person and virtual incident command system and consequence management training company, stop by our website today to address your personal and agency training needs. Go to www.thebluecell.com. And we're back today and we're talking with Dr. Kira Mouseth, a clinical psychologist and specialist in disaster behavioral health. And we talked on the front side of this a lot about the challenges, but um, some of the mental health stresses I've seen people have to deal with surround information or lack thereof about the disease when it comes to the pandemic itself. So I'll, I'll just list out my uh, piece. I, and there's more than this. The initial fear of the, uh, the new disease, that was early on in this. The inability early on to have immediate solution, a pill, a vaccine, um, the conflicting information coming from different sources, uh, never good in a public health emergency. Um, going beyond uh, conflicting misinformation to even disinformation, which we remain in today when you think about vaccines, for instance. Uh, changing guidance as science knowledge evolved. We started with no masks and masks on. Then we were doing really good, so we took the masks off. Oh, now we got Delta variant, but then we got fit, put the mask back done. So vaccines, vaccine hesitancy. And then uh, at this point, uh, the duration event, almost two years here in the United States. So how do people remain resilient in the face of all these changes and challenges? You know, what? You talked about hope being an ingredient to resilience, which I love that idea. Um, so what can we do? Help us yeah. there, doctor. Yeah, well, no pressure, right? Um, so I guess the first thing is, is that, you know, there there's no merit badge for resilience, right? I'm still waiting for mine in the mail, if that's the case. Um, but it's not, resilience isn't an accomplishment or it's not like a place we get to. Uh, it's a process. And so I think, especially with how long this whole thing has gone on, it's really helpful to recognize that resilience is something that can be um, sort of developed and practiced on a regular basis. That's going to just make your day-to-day -day life feel a little bit better. Um, and also as a function of doing that, when we have the opportunity to model the ingredients of resilience for other people, then they copy it and do it as well. As you, as you sort of re referenced a minute ago, you know, people, people don't do what they're told, right? The information thing has been a real big problem, but we humans tend to do what we're shown, right? We copy behaviors and sometimes okay. not even well we're aware. So um, modeling resilience for other people is one way to increase resilience for everybody. And it's not as hard as it may seem, right? It's not a, like I said, it's not a, a mountain peak that you get to and then you're done, but it's an unfolding process. So the first ingredient in resilience is purpose. And when a disaster strikes, um, oftentimes the external circumstances really throw people out of their sense of purpose. There's, a, I'll give you an example. I worked with a grandfather in Haiti and this is a, he was a business businessman and he had lost his wife, he had lost his adult children and he had lost his home and his business. Everything wow. was gone. Wow. And the only remaining members of his family were two granddaughters. And his sense of purpose was completely derailed because he didn't have a shop to go run. And, you know, what was getting him out of bed and that kind of thing in the morning. And he did some of the work with our team. And he came up to me at the end and he said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about purpose. And I, I have decided that my purpose is going to be 
that I'm going to teach my granddaughters how to speak and write in English, because that is a skill that I have that they won't have access to, that I can do something for that. And that's going to help me get out of bed tomorrow morning because of my relationship with my granddaughters and my, my sense of motivation to do this. And that was a very different purpose than one that he'd ever had before. So it behooves us all to sort of reevaluate what are the things that give us meaning in a disaster and let go of some things, even if we don't want to, <laughs> if the yes. circumstances force us to, and realign so with another. Yeah. Here's a question for you. I just saw the headline. You know, there's 4 million people quit their jobs in August. And yeah, in yeah. September, another 4 million quit their jobs. Yeah. It's the headline I think I saw this morning. So do I you think... Uh, we talked what uh, there's an acronym for it. Uh, what, what's the um, YOLO? Um, oh, you yeah, only, you live, only once. live once. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. you reevaluate yep. what you're doing. Is that part of this? I do think that is, yeah. I mean, disasters from a behavioral health lens, disasters shine a spotlight on the things that are going well and the things that aren't. Um, there's, there, you know, there are a lot of family and social discord issues that have just had this huge spotlight on them as a function of this. And I think the job thing, job satisfaction, and what do I want my role to be? And what do I want to contribute to? Those are all questions people have been asking themselves over the last 18, 19 months. And will continue to ask um, well into, you know, well into this new year. So um, yeah, I do think that the job, the huge labor shifts that we're seeing everywhere yeah. are a function of this, for sure. That's a purpose, okay. a, a piece of it is the purpose thing. Yeah. The, uh, the next ingredient in resilience is connection. And, you know, I think we made a mistake right at the beginning, uh, calling this, um, asking people to do social distancing rather than physical distancing, well, because we need ooh, social yeah. connection. Yeah. Right? I'm going to write um, and, that down <laughs> because so it idea, is, I mean, that's a misnomer. It is. And it's, um, it's really unfortunate because it is a threat to behavioral health. Uh, isolation and withdrawal in a disaster is really, it contributes to hopelessness. It's just really not a positive thing. So we want to stay connected to people and we've had to be creative. You know, I've been exceedingly thankful that this disaster didn't happen in the 90s when we wouldn't have had the internet situation, right. all yeah. the technology. So the fact that we can, you and I can even have this conversation online is a, a thing that, you know, we're fortunate to have. Um, and the connection and the opportunities to be creative and connecting with people who feel passionately about um, a project or a hobby or something uh, or an issue the way you do, or any relationships with a higher power or with God or with loved ones, of course, and friends and family members. And you know what? Another form of connection that has saved lives is pets. Pets have saved people's lives this pandemic. Yeah. My, for sure. The podcast I have run in this week is um, on uh, pets and disasters. And we talked a little bit about the whole adoption aspect, yeah. which was good for the pets and great for people also. Yeah. And given how contentious some of this experience has been, you know, your, your dog isn't going to judge you for thinking one way or the other about something, right? So it's that unconditional thing yes. that we don't get from other people. <laughs> we don't get that from other humans. The only uh, mammal that loves you unconditionally. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's, you know, connection is, is essential. That's, a, that's the second ingredient of resilience. And then the third one that is the hardest one for people is adaptability. 
and people don't like change, right? We just, as a species, we don't like change and we don't like things to be unexpected and unpredictable. So um, adaptability is arguably, at least in my opinion, the most important ingredient of resilience, but it's also the most challenging for most of us. And one of the things I've been suggesting recently to folks to sort of, if you're curious about where your personal level of adaptability is, um, pay attention to how you respond when something unexpected or negative happens. If you get a flat tire or if you get a uh, email that's um, negative or an unexpected budget cutback or something, right? Whether it's at work yeah. or home, how do, you, how do you respond to that? Do you think of it as a challenge or as, as a threat? Because if your body responds to that unexpected negative thing as a threat, you have very few options, right? Fight or flight, run, hide, fight, that yeah. kind of thing. And if it's a challenge, well then, you know, it's game on. You can break it down. You can resource. You can talk to other people. You can work it through and overcome. Yeah. And and what threatens some doesn't threat other people. Uh, I can tell you, the worst thing you could tell me is, Eric, we have this new software program we want you to use. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> you can't be yeah. kidding me. <laughs> so that might feel like a threat to you, but not yes, a threat it to does. someone else. Yes, exactly. So the, the more we can practice shifting our thinking from threat to challenge, the yeah. more adaptability we have, okay. right? The more, the more flexible we are. And the cool thing is that the byproduct of that, when we practice that, hope is the byproduct. And hope is the fourth ingredient. Because when you perceive something as a challenge, you're like, okay, well, I have hope now that I can overcome it. Hope and threats do not go together. <laughs> but okay, yeah, hope, right. hope does go with challenge. So um, yeah, hope is that last one. And hope is the... Hope is the emotionally meaningful one. It looks different, very different for different folks. And I, I'll just, I'll add this metaphor or analogy, I guess, to the thing. Um, if if it, remembering the ingredients of resilience are tricky, um, try to keep a tree in mind. A tree is a good example of resilience. The roots of the tree are the connection, right? The ground you give you nutrients and support. That's your stable base. And the adaptability is the trunk of the tree right, going up from the ground yeah. that flexes in the storm. The tree has to sway in the wind or it will crack and break, right? And then you get up to the leaves and the fruit and that's the purpose. That's what are you producing? What are you doing? You know, what is the, what is the meaning making for you? And then the hope, I'm gonna stretch it a little farther, but the hope is the moss that grows on the north side of the tree <laughs> because the, the, the moss likes it where it's dark and cold and that there are few resources and that's, it thrives there. And that's where hope can live in a disaster too. So yeah, keep a okay. tree in mind. <laughs> All right, now I'm a gardener. I'll send you the drone Perfect. video of my garden. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you can create more moth by painting buttermilk on rocks or anything. So pretty cool. What can you paint more hope with on the north side of the tree? That's really a good question. I think, it, I think that comes from perceiving things as challenging. Yeah. If, if it's a challenge, you can, I mean, that, that's a hopeful place to be. It's like, you know what? I did not expect this. Um, I'll give you another example. My oldest son, who's only six, started kindergarten this year. And he was quarantined twice in the first six weeks of school for 14 days at a time because of yeah. exposure to someone who was positive. That was a complete disruption for his kindergarten experience, for our family, for my husband and I and our work. Yeah. And it was not it was not a, it was an unexpected change that was very negative and we had to deal with it. So if I can practice saying, okay, this is not what I expected for my week. I'm going to have to figure out what to do. What are my options? How do I move meetings? How do I take care of him? 
um, and then I can break it down and overcome it. That's more hopeful than panicking. Yes. <laughs> Saying, ah, you know, what am I well, you do? have to, <laughs> Kira, you need to take it as a challenge, not as a threat. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You can yeah. allow yourself a couple minutes to panic and then get down, buckle down, and start problem solving. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I, you know, there's different classes of people have been impacted differently, but certainly public health, emergency management, and I think even more so public health has been in this pandemic response marathon. So what advice do you have to people still on the front lines and, and the medical community, nurses, doctors, hospitals, battling yeah. the disease? What, you know, what's yeah. your advice to them? Because well, it's, it's not even over. And I, I did a blog post that should be up hopefully later today about, hey, you know, next year, they expect another wave, even without a variant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the virus itself isn't going away, but I think what can change and shift is, you know, how we respond to it and how we respond to each other, and whether that's through support or, you know, the ways that we can sort of buoy each other up. Um, one of the things that's happening in many different professions, but especially public health and healthcare, and even for educators right now too, um, is a concept called moral injury. And that is when there just aren't enough resources for you to be able to do your job in a way that you think you should, right? And then you feel shame or guilt or anger um, because you just can't do your job the way you expect yourself to be yeah, able to do it. Too many patients in the hospital. Right, exactly. So one of the things with moral injury is to you know, to do as much active coping as you can, right? I think the temptation for a lot of folks is to withdraw maybe some substance use um, and that's avoidance or passive coping, which we know doesn't usually turn out very well. So we wanna encourage active coping, getting people to, I recommend getting people to just write down a list of stuff, stick it on your refrigerator so that you have it available. And when you come home after a really rough shift or having a really bad day, you, you find something on that list that you're willing to try. And these are things that you write down that you know work for you, right? That take anywhere from five minutes to five hours. So it can be um, a hot shower, it could be making cookies, it could be going for a small walk, it could be petting the dog. It doesn't matter what's on the list because it's your list. And if you actively engage in your own kind of coping plan for yourself, it can't hurt. Like that's one of the things that we know can help people. The other thing to keep in mind with moral injury is that it is a like, you know, not having enough resources is a function of this disaster and it's not a personal shortcoming. It's not your fault. And putting the appropriate blame in the appropriate spot, like not, not internalizing that is gonna yeah. help, help you sleep at night. Yeah. yeah, I would think a perfectionist <clears throat> would really have trouble with this. You know, they yeah. want to be yeah. on the ball all the time, top notch, and you just can't meet your personal. Right. Yeah. But, in medical school, they teach you that there's, that's called the myth of indispensability, when I'm the only one who can do X, Y, and Z, Yes. Um, and I have to see this patient's care through from beginning to end, and you just can't do that. Yes. You just can't do that all the time. So it's a myth for a reason, um, and that's where trust comes in, too, because we do need to ask our colleagues, and, you know, sometimes, the, especially in healthcare, the folks that we work with are the only other ones who get it. People yeah. don't get it. They don't understand what it's like. Um, so connecting to your colleagues and regularly checking in is another way to to help help with right. this in the long run and how uh, 
you know, I alluded to it earlier in the podcast. What about the issue of you, you got to get away? You got to have a break. Mm-hmm. What about that? Yeah. So boundaries are <clears throat> pretty, pretty rough <laughs> for people right now. Um, but the research is very, very clear on this, that burnout is directly related to boundaries. And the, the key thing about time and boundaries is that it looks different for everybody, right? Not everybody needs the same amount of time. Not everybody needs the same number of days. The way you structure it is totally unique to you. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but um, everybody needs to have some kind of a break and some kind of a, a physical space or a time where they are stepping away and they are engaged in an activity that is as unrelated to their day-to-day job as is possible, right? So what, I think for you, that's your garden. Yeah. Being it out used there to be during... golf, but I'm not getting this pandemic here has not been good to my golf game. Too busy. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. So that's been a creative adjustment, right? That's adaptability. You found a different way to to take your time off and get your get your space yeah. from the work. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, you just have to have it. People have to have it. And we, we aren't good at, at making sure we carve that time out and protect it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, this is just another aspect of what we've been talking about. But, and I saw this on uh, a news report. Uh, a nurse was saying, you know, early in the pandemic, they were heroes for their work and saving lives. And then as it's gone on, there's less of this, uh, acclamation for what they do and they achieve and that they're getting people in who are angry at them for that and for them being sick and you know right. they deny that you know they even have COVID while they're in there for COVID and having to deal with all this negativity where they were heroes and now all of a sudden they're you know being having abuse heaped, heaped on them. Right I, I think that what has happened to the healthcare workers, um, not, and again, not just in our country, but everywhere, has been absolutely tragic. Um, and in so many ways, um, just this, this incredibly sort of horrific experience that many of them have been living through. And, you know, we certainly, we owe them more than that, absolutely. Um, but if I was speaking directly to that nurse right now, or to someone else um, in a similar situation, what I would say is that, um, it's, it's helpful to try as best as you can to remind yourself about what it is that's connecting you to the job and, and connecting yourself to the patients who are so appreciative and so thankful. Because uh, there, are, there are hundreds of thousands of those same folks who, who've lived through this thing, who are also very sick and whose lives have been affected in a positive way by the work that you do. I actually read an article this week about a, 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 a man who, was a um, anti-vax COVID denier um, and he himself was hospitalized um, and recovered and that, that still didn't change his mind. And then his daughter got sick and she was hospitalized. Otherwise healthy young, young lady, 18, I wanna say, and she almost died. And he was in this news article um, being quoted at that point about how, how thankful he was for the healthcare workers and how he said, these people are beyond heroes. They are, um, you just, because they saved his daughter's life basically and they saved his. And it's so much easier for our brains to focus on the people who are mad or expressing their fear towards us rather than the patients who are grateful and thankful because when our disaster brain is focused on negative and protection from the negative, right? So that's where we go. But those positive interactions, those, 
when someone says thank you, those are the things we really need to pay attention to and try and internalize because it's there. It's just harder to notice right now, um, but it is still there. So if we can shift our attention a little bit, I think that will help uh, psychologically in the short and the long run for those, those folks who are gonna continue to do healthcare. Okay. Well, there's certainly many families out there have, have children. So kids are pretty much back in school except for yep. you know, outbreaks, stuff like that. And my yeah. son, his <laughs> wife are both teachers in elementary schools. And he was saying there, um, he was with another teacher and his wife in the hallway and they saw the school counselor and they said, oh, we need counseling. The counselor said, I, you need counseling. I need counseling. Um, yeah. just yeah. so much stress out there. So, um, is there anything, you know, a book or something, you know, that a self-help we've talked about a lot of different things here, but yeah. where you'd say, Hey, try this, you know, free, yeah. free advice. Well, um, I'm sure that you've heard of Brene Brown, um, but she does a lot of really great work with resilience. She also has a book on grief and loss, which is a huge element of our behavioral health during this pandemic. Um, okay. And it's not necessarily the direct loss of a loved one. It's the loss of identity or hope or all the things. So Brene Brown is a wonderful author. She's got a, a series of podcasts uh, as well, I believe, um, and many publications and as well as videos. How do you spell um, Brene? B-R-E-N-E. -E. Yes. That I would recommend her materials because I think they are okay. um, they're solid and they're very accessible to people. And they're, really. they're I, I have heard that name, but yeah. um, they're not for the, if you will, clinical behavioral no. psychologists. It's for, for average anybody. people. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Not technical at all. Right. Um, not technical and very very accessible, but also um, she definitely knows her stuff. Right? It's scientifically sound, so that's that's always a good thing. And I'm sure she can explain it so we can understand it. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, I, I just want to say thank you to uh, Kira Masses for being a, a doctor, Kira Masses, for being a guest <laughs> here on the Disaster Zone uh, podcast. And it's been terrific. I've, I've learned a lot myself. So Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm always happy to talk about disasters anytime, Eric. So oh, <laughs> I appreciate right. your time. Well, <laughs> That's, people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I do disasters. <laughs> so Yeah, that's right. All right. I feel a little bit like I should be sending you a check. It's been <laughs> 45 minutes. Do I have to prorate it for an hour? Or no, do you we're bill all good. in 15-minute segments? <laughs> I, won't, I don't need to send you a bill. It's all good. <laughs> okay. Very good. Thank well, you. Well, we can certainly say we've been through a collective experience of a lifetime and not one of our choosing, but we did experience it together in our own individual ways as we talked about here in this podcast. Hopefully you came away today from this podcast with a better understanding for what you have had to deal with and some suggestions that you can personally put to good use in coping with stress from the pandemic experience. And lastly, a reminder to everyone to be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster. And if you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share a link on it to your social media contacts. Uh, thanks for listening and bye-bye. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters.
You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.